Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Joining me this week is Henry James fan Thea Lenarduzzi, who certainly did not confuse him with Nathaniel Hawthorne last week when we talked about him on this show. Yes, yes, yes. And in, was- the heat, in the heat of the moment, in my defence, yes, I said, I said the Scarlet Letter when I meant the portrait of a lady, but it's not as absurd as you no. are so gleefully suggesting, because... In his study of Hawthorne, I think you'll all find. Read. I think you'll find Henry James did cite that as as an influence. He did, did the duskiness and all of that. However, <laughs> Matt, our very kind producer, edited out the mistake. He did. He he has more affection for me than you do. He's a clearly. gentleman. He's, He's a, a gentleman. gentleman. You, on the other hand. Well, let's move on. I'm a cad. Uh, It's great news that Thea is such an aficionado, as she would no doubt correctly pronounce, because this week we're devoting this podcast to the wonderful Henry James, who I once wrote two dissertations about at university. Such was my admiration for him and my sly indolence in using one set of notes twice. Today we'll be talking about the unlikely prospect of James in Los Angeles. Think Chandler and then think completely again. And we'll talk about his novelistic output more widely. We'll be joined by two Jamesians, Philip Horn and Francis Wilson, who both have essays in the paper this week. We don't readily associate Henry James with West Coast America. We can see him in New York, of course, that neo-puritanical world of moneyed angst, and we feel his artistic impulse pushing him ever further east to nations filled with crumbling palazzi, decadent aristocracy and the complicating pressure of a longer history. When he wrote The American Scene, the dizzying, immensely suggestive work, in the words of Philip Horne this week, a prose poem of the First Order, according to Auden many years earlier, he went no further west than Florida, and many readers probably assume James didn't either, if they think about it at all. But he did, as the Los Angeles Times reported in March 1905. Henry James here, well-known novelist, alone, slips quietly into apartments at the Van Noys. 
This is late James, of course, and it's hard to imagine the author of The Golden Bowl finding much inspiration in the underdeveloped streets of Los Angeles. There seems little artistically to connect James with, say, Raymond Chandler, who made much of the smoggy moral squalor just a few years later. And James was far more sensitive to the scene than the citizens. California completely bowled him over. But he was affected by the landscape, the languid lisp of the Pacific, all that nature and climate. It's often amusing to compare James's vision for his work, especially his late work, and its execution. To the master, the ideas behind the fiction always seem simple. The ambassadors he noted was very straight. To the red-eyed reader, those monstrously sinuous sentences are anything but. They needed, according to the Chicago Evening Post, as much application and attention as Kantian metaphysics. We feel James retains a scientific precision in his prose, an inviolable authority. It's somewhat reassuring then to chart his errors and missteps, as Francis Wilson does in the TLS this week, or to think of him as overwhelmed by the sight of the Pacific Ocean stretching out past his normal horizon. So to discuss all of this, we are joined, thankfully, by Philip Horn, author of Henry James and Revision, which I used in both of my dissertations, and Francis Wilson, biographer most recently of Thomas de Quincey and a Jamesian herself. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello. Right, before we're going to talk about all the lovely stuff that you've written, why don't we try and fix where we are with the state of Henry James's reputation? Is he rising or falling stock-wise, do you think? Uh, I think we might have come to the end of a quiet period. Really? Um, I mean, there's John Banville's novel, his sequel to The Portrait of a Lady, which came out last year. There's a film of the Aspen Papers with Vanessa Redgrave, which is, was it Venice? Yeah, that's right. So I think there are, there are a number of things coming out. You got a book out? out? Uh, I got a book out earlier this year. Yeah, which is Tales from a Master's Notebook, which is short stories by contemporary writers based on ideas from James's notebooks that James himself never got around to writing. Why do you think, Francis, we keep returning to him collectively? Because at one level, he's a very Victorian figure. The, the stories are very complete and of their time he doesn't necessarily feel like someone who would dramatically speak to our age I just wanted to address what Philip had just said about about the reputation of James. I think it's going to change dramatically with these with these Cambridge editions. They're so brilliantly done, and they brought James hurling back to us in, with with such force. How have they done that? The precision of the editorial work, the way in which James has been caught out again and again and again as not quite the master he presents himself as being, they're enormous fun. I mean, looking at James's revisions are enormous fun. Looking at his oversights is enormous fun. There's a sense of James at work, and so not the polished, finished James, but James the craftsman sitting at his desk, working away and having blocks and anxieties and, um, and making mistakes and having a huge idea that isn't quite managing to come off. So this is, um, we, we've got a, a fully dimensional, many-layered human being here. You mentioned a couple of the key mistakes, Francis. There's the two chapters in The Ambassadors, which seem to be in the wrong place. Uh, there's that critical scene, which I mentioned in The Portrait of a Lady, uh, which is based on the fact that one of Madame Merle is sitting down and Osmond standing up in whatever order, and he seemed to confuse that. Yeah, that's very, very funny. I was so struck by that in um, in Portrait of a Lady. It's a very famous scene. It's the pivotal scene in Chapter 30. And I am interested in the fact that the pivotal scenes in The Ambassadors and Portrait of a Lady both take place in Chapter 30. Anyway, the pivotal scene in Chapter oh, 30 yeah. has Madame Merle and Osmond 
looking at each other, talking face to face. And Madame Merle is looming over Osmond. She's standing and he's sitting. And that's the image I remember reading it when I was a teenager and that's the image I've carried with me all my life and then what you see in this new Cambridge edition is this mistake that James made where initially when Isabella sees them Madame Merle is sitting and he overlooked and so he has her sitting and then suddenly standing and James overlooked this mistake in his revisions and it was such, and it was picked out by an editor some way down the line and so these things I find enormously sort of humanizing of James and of course the uh, the error in the chapter reversals in the ambassadors is comedic in its insistence. But is that not is that not testament uh Philip slightly to the nature of the ambassadors which is we're in we're in late James by that point it's relatively heavy going uh, at one uh, reading of yeah. it is it not i mean is it hard to say what is the correct order at all for henry james uh well i mean that i think i think the question of whether the order of the chapters is to do with whether one is a retrospective chapter looking back to something that happened before you know i mean so uh, it's complicated anyway and one's used to those effects in james yeah you know, that very often you jump ahead and then look back so um but is he less masterful than than we give him credit for yeah, I don't give him credit for being completely masterful, just sort of more masterful than nearly everybody else. You know, um, He wasn't uh, the I closest mean, of, of, of um, proofreaders, basically. Uh, no, well, he, he was a very, he was an extremely close proofreader, because I, I should confess an interest, I'm one of the general editors of the, um, the Cambridge, thankfully, Cambridge Francis, edition. Thankfully, Francis lied, otherwise this would be a very frosty <laughs> yeah. conversation we're about to have. Uh, yes. Imagine uh, if Francis said, you know what, I think the, Cam- the Cambridge yeah. is just really bad this really time. Really let me down. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but the, one, of the, one of the volumes I'm doing is The Golden Bowl, and I'd assumed that there wouldn't be any interesting revisions in The Golden Bowl because he published in 1904 and then the revisions are five years later. But then there are sentences where there are 13 commas in the 1904 edition, and it goes down to one or two commas in the, 19, in the New York edition. So, I mean, this was a complete revelation to me. And, and what was the effect of that? Well, the effect of it is, is to go from this very broken up style, which you can, you can see why people find it so hard to read, because you're kind of get it, given all these clauses and you've got to try and relate them. And actually, in, it's almost like James has had some kind of revelation that you could just strip out all of that and read it steadily going through and the meaning will just... And it's true. I mean, that I'd always read the Penguin edition, which I think is, uses the... Um, uh, New York edition, and and it had never given me any trouble. But but uh, I mean, but just thinking about the proofreading yeah. side, I mean, to be able to remove eleven commas and still have the sentence make suppose, sense is so, yeah. is is quite a you know. I mean, you have to analyse the sentence. I suppose that's that, that's, that's at the level of a sentence. When I think yeah. w- what I mean was just to have missed so many times the, yeah. the transposition of, I th- of these I th- two I think chapters. You wouldn't, and... I think you probably wouldn't have the idea that the chapters would be in, yeah. could be in the wrong order. He that's had faith probably, in his editor. Yeah. A mistake. <laughs> did you did you find in your um in your working on uh, the Golden Bowl that James was increasingly interested or interested or disinterested in in his own readability? That's a good question. Ooh, yes. Well, I mean, the preface to the Golden Bowl famously has that thing about um, rich, richly rewarding prose uh, repays viva voce treatment. That that sort of if you read a passage out, then that out out loud. That's the real test of how powerful it is. And yes. so he's thinking that in the time of the Golden Bowl. And of course, he's, I mean, this is the period when he's dictating to a secretary. Every, everything, all his prose is Dictated. sounded. It's out, sounded out loud. C- can I ask a Philistine question about the Golden Bowl? Because I've read almost everything by Henry James. 
Do you, Francis or Philip, honestly believe there is a wide audience of people who will want to read The Golden Bowl in its entirety for pleasure? I think that people will want to read The Golden Bowl in its entirety for snobbish reasons. I think you you have to be seen to know your Henry James. I don't think pleasure comes into it, but I think think pleasure comes into it very deeply for me and for Philip Mm. and for you. But... Mm. I think there is a snobbish value attached to Henry James. But, and particularly the yeah. Golden Bowl, because it is so very, very, very hard. It is a very yeah. hard, you know, it's probably yeah. in the top 20 hard novels in terms of difficulty in reading ever yeah. written, yeah. potentially yeah. in English. And I mean, I have to say, my th- the thing that got me into reading James was um, going up to university and being sharing a kitchen with somebody who had read the golden bowl and was completely insufferable about it <laughs> and, and saying you weren't, weren't civilized unless you had read the golden bowl and so on so i went exactly. home my first vacation and i sat down for three weeks and i read the golden bowl and i, I just was converted uh, but you know i mean i was reading seven pages an hour yeah, maybe. I mean it's uh, it, it's like poetry you know but 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 there's but, but there's nothing more rewarding and nothing at a certain level it's a really profound pleasure but so because because of that because the golden bowl is so so different to early james do we need to mm. think about in terms of 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 how james is 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 thought of in the in the popular imagination and, and received popularly do we need to think about splitting him in terms i mean the style is so different it's yeah. almost like two writers yeah. two different writers yeah well i mean there's certainly the james of the turn of the screw yeah. which has a continues to have a kind of popular appeal and they make a film every six months or yeah. something. Um, and, and then the Aspen Papers and the Portrait of a Lady, which are... Middle James. Middle James. But also, there's an argument. I mean, you, might, you guys might disagree, but it seems to me that in some ways the peak of his novelistic output is The Portrait of a Lady mm. because it combines both yeah. some of the judgment and, and, and some of that attenuated beauty of the later novels with still being a great piece of Victorian fiction you could put yeah. against Bleak House you yeah. could put against those those mm. sort of baggy monsters of the of the yeah. 19th century is if you had to say is, is Portrait of a Lady not the thing you'd hang your hat on uh, I mean if I were recommending one James novel to a new reader I, it would always be Portrait of a Lady not the Golden Bowl I yeah. think uh, unless about, they were very snobbish. But, uh, what about you, Francis? Do you think we can make a case that the portrait is at least is 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 the greatest? I don't think so. I mean, i i love I love the portrait, but I think it's I think it's it, 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 it's too George Eliot, if you like. I don't think it's Henry James enough. I like James when he gets really, really tangled. Oh, oh, <laughs> uh, oh my! So you, you you are extreme Jamesian. Is that what you're saying here? You're you're for three last novels. I, uh, I am, I am. I like to feel the tension in his writing and the tension in his thought. And I like it when the sentences become become really knotty with 800 commas. <laughs> really? See, see, see I've... I, is, that, is that just a... Is that just a, you admiring complexity for its own sake, though, Francis? No, I, it's not because I don't like complexity for its own sake. It's something much more visceral than that. And I can't, I've never really been able to understand it. But I think it's, uh, I think it's to do with uh, my dual reading of James. That I always read James's novels alongside the notebooks and letters. And so what interests me is the difference between what he sets out to achieve and what he eventually achieves and why his descriptions of what he's setting out to achieve are so lucid and so clear and so fluent and why the eventual product is so strangled. Yeah. And, um, and, and I love 
the, I love what's going on in the in the space between. Because think of this idea that the ambassadors is very straight. It's uh, not straight. It, it's at obviously all. not straight at all, and it's a very hard. That again, it's the, it's it's late again, so it's it's a very hard going book. Uh, at one level, Lambert Strether, who's the the central character, gives the live all you can speech, but he just observes for four hundred pages. Yeah, I suppose yeah. Uh, Ian Forster describes the hourglass structure in the ambassadors, doesn't he? So, for, I mean, you, you, that. You, uh, well, um, that it sort of crosses over. That you know, Strether comes over with one mission. He's trying to bring back the erring. Chad, and yeah. at the end, the erring Chad decides to go back, and Strether is trying to stop him. So yeah. they've kind of switched positions. Yeah. I mean, and and Forster didn't really like James, but he does describe this as a kind of perfect structure. So I mean, maybe that's what he means about the straight straightness of the ambassadors. Um, what do, what do we know then about? I mean, about the way that Henry James set out to to make his fiction. What did he what did he value? How did he approach it? Quite often there are the anecdotes or the kind of the thought experiments that then become something that is just not at all straight. Yeah, the Donne. The Donne. Uh, well, very often he... Uh, I mean, I'm, <coughs> I'm also editing for m- myself the notebooks again um, oh. from manuscript, which has been a bit mad. But, um, so you get to see his, oh, his, yeah, his yeah, handwriting. Yeah. I mean, try, trying to make it out. What's it, how bad is his handwriting? <laughs> it's, uh, some periods it's quite good, but mostly it's quite difficult and... There are always, I mean, actually, a reasonable number of errors in the existing transcriptions. So, oh, really? And does he wander around with a little notebook, jotting down? Uh, most, or? mostly not. I think mostly it's at his desk. But, but there is, um, yeah, actually, there's another unwritten book, um, London Town, which he was going to do. He signed the contract in 1903, and then tried to write it for about five years and he would periodically go out into the streets of London and wander around with a notebook jotting things down and saying, you know, there are two tramps gnawing a chicken bone down at the end of the churchyard. Did he dictate his um, his notebook entries as well towards the end or uh, were these always handwritten? They, they, the notebooks, strictly speaking, are always handwritten, but he did dictate scenarios and plans for for. Uh, novels, sometimes for publishers and sometimes just for his own use. Were there any left when he when he died? Then? Yes, yeah. I mean, uh, two in the Cambridge edition, uh, we've got we're going to have um, they're nearly done now. Uh, the Ivory Tower and the Sense of the Past, the two unfinished novels, and there's quite a lot of material for those. And actually, some really interesting uh, Sense of the Past material where he was dictating a passage of the novel, then he would have an idea for how to do the rest of the story, and he'd just carry on, kind of planning the story after, you know, this passage of fiction. And then they, they were, these were uh, put in the uh, Houghton Library as discarded sheets, so nobody, I think, looked at them for years. But they've got all this sort of interesting material, uh, note, kind of notebook material. Uh, Francis, how do you envisage him as a writer? Because if you read the notebooks, I suppose there's, there's the idea, there's the little summary, and then there's sometimes a list of names, and then mm. he sometimes comes back to it, he leaves it for a little bit. When you, because you're a, uh, a biographer do you do you imagine do you have a sort of imaginary James in your mind it's always the James of the notebooks I absolutely adore the notebooks I can't wait for this new for Philip's edition I think the notebooks are fascinating and very very moving and one of the things I love about them are the refrains that run through like one of them is what is there in the idea of too late and he capitalises the T and he capitalises the L. And this idea of lateness, being too late, being too late on the scene, being too late in his own life, it's very it's very open what he means by too late, runs all the way through. And I've been, I've been thinking about 
this for years and years and years what he means by this and then when we talk about late Henry James I always think is it too late <laughs> are we talking about too late Henry James what does lateness mean for him and I wonder with Philip if I could just ask Philip are there other refrains which are as haunting and as melancholic that you uh, that you've detected running through the notebooks as a whole uh I- I can't think of anything as melancholic. I mean, dramatised, dramatised and all that. I mean, those those things. Yes. And the, the way he talks to, to Montbon, isn't it? His his yes. tutelary spirit who's going to... Yes. <laughs> who's always with him. Uh, I mean, they're very... Yeah, I mean, they are very unguarded in a certain way. Um, I think we're going to come back in a moment. We're going to talk about the unknown James. We'll take us back to Philip's piece, which is him uh, romping around LA. So we'll come to that next. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm struck, guys, when we talk about Henry James, there's an awful lot. He wrote these voluminous notes. There's letters. He wrote prefaces to all of his novels or most of his novels so you actually where he set down why he wrote them he revised them so we know so much about him and yet there's lots of parts of his life which are a mystery you know there's there's the the obscure hurt which took him out the civil war which may or may not have been impotence there's his his sex life his romantic inclinations um do you find that odd that we know so much and so little at the same time about him? Is that is that one of the reasons why we keep sort of endlessly returning to him, like a James in character? I, I mean, I suppose one thing is just that there, are, you know, there are twenty novels and hundred whatever it is short stories. I mean, there's almost more than anyone would 
than most people want to read. So, but there are these great masterpieces. And so kind of when you've read one, you want, you feel the need, the urge to read more. But but there's always this kind of hinterland of stuff that you don't know. And I mean, also, I, I, I confess I've been reading James, you know, most of my adult life and I've forgotten an awful lot. So I keep discovering things that I probably knew when I was 20. But, you know, he's I, kind I've of unfair in a way that Jane Austen, Francis, is kind of, you know, her fiction you can read six books and you're, you're done to a certain extent. I know there's some other bits and bobs. James, has anyone ever read all of James and then therefore has anyone ever fully understood him? Well, I think that James is very... Um, is, he, he's Reading James is very determined by age and we talk about, you know, sort of early James and middle James and late James and I think that reading middle James in one's own middle age is a very different experience to reading middle age when middle James when you're 18 and re, um, you know the, and the ambassadors it's late James but it's about middle age it's about a 56 year old man and the jolly corner is about another 56 year old man and I find as I move through my 50s I'm more and more interested in what James has to say about uh, about being middle aged and I'd missed I'd missed all this when I was when I was reading him as a teenager He's almost prematurely middle-aged, Henry James, isn't he? He, he is, yeah. yes. <laughs> he feels like he was he was he was he was born with a bald pate and uh, and and, and it's like angst. Um, let's talk about yes. Phil- let's go to Philip's piece because um, I didn't know about this at all, uh, Philip. He um, he went to the west coast of America. We associate him with the east. We associate him with Europe. We don't associate him with downtown LA. Yeah, uh, yeah. He he. Uh, I think through an agency negotiated a kind of an amazing lecture tour, which is one of the ways people. Um, uh, well, I mean, it was, it was his way of funding his travels, partly, uh, and it was mainly ladies' clubs. Uh, and in fact, there were jokes in the press about how only women could understand Henry James. Uh, oh. and, and and there was one uh, there was one lecture in Chicago where um, uh, a newspaper report said that three men were spotted in the audience, but one was asleep, one was trapped and couldn't get out, and, and the other one was forced to stay by his wife or something. I mean, it, that, you know, that, that's the so he kind. was seen as a writer for ladies. He was seen as a writer for ladies, and also and also incredibly difficult, uh, so that you know people could speak uh, you know French, German, and Henry James. That was uh, another thing that they said in the papers. Uh, but I mean, I, one of the interesting things about doing this piece because I, I, I I'd always known there was this western aspect and i've been gradually collecting bits and pieces over the years uh because now you can look in i mean historical the kind of databases of historical newspapers are very easy to search and so you just find how much of a media figure he was on this whole trip and people were making up news about him when they couldn't um, so what were they what were they saying well in the interview which julian hawthorne did with him which i use in the piece, uh, which is a really interesting... Hawthorne, certain... Yes, son of Nathaniel Hawthorne. Again, there you Again, go. Uh, I've scarlet letter One of the things, uh, I, I, I didn't have space for this in the piece, um, James complains about the phone and how you're always being, he's in a hotel and people just ring him up all the time and so he was at his morning ablutions <laughs> and the phone rang and there was a lady interviewer wanting to talk to him and uh, so he, he kind of kind of looks quizzically at uh, um, uh, Julian Hawthorne and um, this then gets repeated in other newspapers but kind of enormously elaborated so that James is given this line of dialogue why madam it is impossible I'm in a semi-nude state of dress (laughs) (laughs) so they love making up these kind of James it's a kind of dude humour I think James is the ultimate Mm. dude uh, in the West 
but I mean, the, the, the lovely thing about the, the LA section of his travels is that um, uh, I think he was a bit tired after th- bored after three days in the play, Great Plains, uh, which he calls a single boundless empty platitude. Um, <laughs> uh, and so he's sort of sitting around in the lobby of the hotel and they, these journalists come up and he talks to them. Um, and, and I found this uh, very nice uh, sort of interview where they try and ask him questions and he asks them questions instead. And the journalist has caught on and said that he's kind of that these little stubs of questions are asked, and then James just comes out with this torrent of curiosity about California. Um, uh, So there's quite a record of him in in LA. Um, Did you know he went to LA, Francis? No, I didn't. I was really fascinated by this. It, it was extraordinary. I was also struck by um, the fact that it was headline news. Yeah, I can't you know, believe that. that. Henry James appears in LA. How could that be headline news? I mean, had nothing else happened that day? Uh, there wasn't so much happening, I think, in, in <laughs> LA in those days. And uh, LA, LA by that point is still pretty frontiery, isn't yeah. it? I mean, they're, they're, it's not been that long since the gold rush no. and, and all of that. And there's things. no Hollywood yet or anything, any of that. Uh, I think Ryder Haggard was there at the same time. Was he? Um, and Chandler was ten, 10 years away. Chandler comes yeah. to LA in 1913, I think. Right. Uh, so yeah. so it's a very different LA that he starts to yeah. write about than, than, than Henry James. And in a sense, Henry James was Hollywood. He sort of, he brought the show and, and they didn't yeah. really know what to do with him. What, what yeah. did he make of California? Well, he loved it. I mean, the nature. Mm. Uh, I think I also didn't have room for um, his trip to uh, Coronado Beach. He goes to the Coronado uh, which is the hotel they use in Some Like It Hot uh, for Florida. <laughs> How did you not uh, include this in the... In the I, I, know, I know, I know. What's, just, go, what's this, going on? I know. Was so, the, Bury uh, the lead. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> uh, and he writes this wonderful, one of the most moving notebook entries in the whole thing where he's, he remembers um, going to visit the family grave in Cambridge, Massachusetts on this cold night just at dusk and, the, you know, the pink sky and the kind of sun is setting over the Soldiers Field Stadium on the other side of the Charles River. And so on that, he's doing all this from this kind of Pacific oh. coast hotel. I mean, um, I'll keep digging and see if how much more there is, but I think, I think LA is the core of it. And, um, and he could have continued the American scene, but didn't, never got yeah. around to it. And he goes to all these interesting places, sort of weird Buddhist educational establishments and so on. Wonderful to have James writing about those. Your piece reminded me of a kind of a Jamesian story, you know, because your piece was about a piece he didn't write. What James didn't write Mm. about California, it reminded me of the Jolly Corner, you know, what he might have done had he gone back to New York. Yeah, it was it was too late. Or I mean, or he went back, he went late. back too too yes. early. Too yeah. late, too late. He's an oddly commercial figure, isn't he? I suppose that's the thing that strikes me that even in this, that you know, it's all about yeah. the deal he can strike yeah. with the publisher. Uh, every time he has an yeah. idea, he's got his agent trying to flog it. I mean, it, it, it's yes. for someone who's so auteurier in some respects, he, he's a very commercial figure. Yeah, James. yeah. I mean, uh, I think Michael Inesco in his first book, uh, Friction with the Market. I mean, his, he was trying to kind of knock down the idea of James as this ivory tower figure who kind of was above the market and didn't care. Um, I mean, James always was trying to do his best. Was know. he trying to write best sense? <clears throat> In one sense, yes. I don't think he went the full... I mean, I don't think he was really prepared to compromise, so yeah. so he never did, but... Um, what, what, how bestseller? Do you know this, friends? How bestseller? I mean, it was Portrait of a Lady with these Dickensian-sized books. I, I, I've got no concept of the popularity, or otherwise. Do you know, Francis? Do you? No, I don't. No, I'd be interested for to hear what Philip says about that. Do you have? Do you have? Is it, what, I, what numbers was James selling in? Yeah. And was he selling primarily to women? Yeah, uh, I think the highest figures were probably for the Daisy Miller, but then that was pirated. So, 
yeah. <laughs> he, he, he made very he made very next to nothing by it. He said, um, "I think Portrait of a Lady was a a little bit kind of it was fine. Brilliant. It was a kind of succeed d'esteem, but it wasn't. None of them were really big hits. Uh, though the, the Golden Bowl, strangely, um, because it co- it came out as he went on tour in the States, and there was all this publicity around him. You know, and I think people were buying it, you know, a little bit in the way they bought." Brief history of time or something, I and mean, to have it on their yeah. shelves. It's and one of the great unread books. Yeah, you think? and or you know, probably there are lots of copies with the pages cut for the first twenty pages. Yeah, and, uh, it's curious, Philip, what you were saying about uh, uh, Henry James being associated with women readers, because on the one hand, we have Henry James being associated with impossibility and incredible complexity and in unreadability. On the other hand, it's only good for women readers. And so how can we kind of marry that sense of um, women readers not having much up top, but only being able to read Henry James? No, that's a great compliment to women readers, isn't it? The, yeah, the, but it seems well, anachronistic. Too, I would, I would, that too would big a compliment to women readers. You don't buy it. Time. Yeah, you don't buy it. No, I'm just surprised. I'm surprised that on the one hand, we have what's known as women's fiction, which is pretty low down the scale. On the other hand, we have Henry James is read mainly by women. You think, well, I mean, Henry James, super overeducated writer. So so what's going on Uh, there? Well, um, I mean, one of my... Uh, still unwritten project is is a book on Henry James and Teddy Roosevelt, and ah. Teddy Roosevelt kind of hated James's work insofar as he read it. Uh, but Mrs. Roosevelt was a fan, really. Um, they're, so, quite, they're quite temperamentally opposed, Teddy Roosevelt and Henry James. Yes, you know, yes. Sh- I mean, they, shoot they, everything. Yeah, I mean, and they, ride re- they really are a g- kind of great double act um, yeah. <laughs> in a way. Uh, but no, no. I mean, so, so Mrs. Roosevelt liked James's. Writing and, and I think well one of the things in in among American writers at the time, um, you know, uh, well this is particularly the Roosevelt circle with Owen Wister and the kind of Western writers that they, they kind of they're very opposed to what they think of as teacups or kind of you know the, the, the social comedy and all that kind of stuff that's really a bit un, unmanly. Oh, uh, and this so is, I th- this uh, is the time of the Virginian, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, although although Owen Wister actually was very keen on James, uh, and James was very keen on the Virginian. Um, Which is the first? It's the, it's the first cowboy story they think. Yeah, it is. Yeah, the, the, yeah. It's, um, they think, um, uh, but novel were not novel readers of that time predominantly women. Uh, an awful lot were. So it's, it's, it's the form yeah. not a female form, Francis. Maybe that's the point that it was just. Yes. See, it, maybe it was just seen as an occupation for women who didn't work. They had time to read yes. novels. Yes, I think that's a really good point. Having time. Yes. Which you yeah. do. And also uh, Henry James being a civilizing process. You know, reading Henry James made you a more civilised person. Which would, improved your manners. Which would be a fact, actually, in, in America at that time, because you always think that America is a complete country, but throughout Henry James's life, it was pushing West yes. into in uncivilised territory. Yeah. Yes, yes, I think that's... Yeah. That, so that's, imagine that's, LA, that's were pleased that any, right. LA were pleased yes. that any New York novelist had made the trip. Yeah. Yes. To and, come back to the women readers thing, mm. just a second... How did Henry James feel about that? Was he happy with that? Because in your piece, I think it is, you mention um, that he was going to write more for, I think it was Harper's, mm. uh, and the editor at the time said, can you can you just come at it from a from a woman's perspective? Can you yeah. really hone it for, for that particular demographic? And he, he never did do that. Do you think he tired of it? Uh, well, he had written about eight pieces for Harper's Bazaar mm. already. Um, and I suppose the pieces he was thinking of were travel pieces, so kind of 
giving them the woman's angle wasn't necessarily so so easy. I mean, the, uh, the pieces he had written were on the speech of American women and the manners of American women. So they were kind of directly up the Harper's Bazaar street. I, lo- I love the fact that in that period, if you want to have someone write about women... You get a man to do it. Henry James do. <laughs> yeah. We need something from a female perspective, Henry. Can you? We could ask a woman, but actually, would you just give it a go? And, 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 yeah. and he managed to churn out eight eight uh, pieces on it. Uh, I don't imagine he was a very good lecturer. Well, there are differing accounts. Not surprisingly, in some places he was thought to be not not very audible, and in some places he was thought not to be very expressive. But yeah. then other people said, if you listened carefully. It was wonderfully rich and suggestive, and you know they loved it, and they you know hung on every word. So, so I no, I've no, I've absolutely no idea because hearing. you know we have no idea what Henry James's voice sounded like. Even what do you think, Fred? I can't. I mean, I imagine you need an attention span of uh, of some degree to to sit through a, a Henry James lecture. I imagine listening to Henry James was a bit like listening to Coleridge's table talk. That um, mm. it was just the sentences were too long. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably right. Um, I've got something crass and populist to ask at the end, Thea, about consigning and picking our favourites. Do we? Is there anything else you want to cover? I think we've we've gone through a lot of the, the, um, a lot of James here. Well, yeah, and um, th- this sort of goes into what you're about to ask oh, then, because the um, last week when you asked me to nominate a favourite work, yes, on the spot, cruelly, yes, cruelly. But which I man- eventually decided on Washington Square. Yes. I completely agree. Which completely agree. I am interested in the fact that Henry James himself, he didn't like it. He, in fact, he, I think he chose not to include it in the New York edition that he, that he was preparing towards what, the early 1900s, 1907 or something, was yeah, it? Yeah, um, Why did he, why do we love it? And <laughs> why did he hate it? I know why I, I like it. I, uh, I wouldn't say he hated it. I mean, there were constraints of space for the New York edition and then I think there's also a little bit of a kind of teleology of he's he's telling the story of his own evolution as a novelist and Washington Square doesn't quite fit into it so much because it's sort of more in the Jane Austen mm. that the narrator doesn't is a kind of very kind of a sort of omniscient ironic commenting narrator probably also Catherine Sloper is not one of these fine consciences mm. in the way that Isabel Archer is, for example. She's not so sensitive to, you know, what's going on around her. But I mean, but it's a great achievement, obviously. It's Why do you like it? Why do you like it? There? I like the I like the the simplicity of it. Um, I like how how muted it is, um, and I like Catherine um, mm. yes. as 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 a yeah. as a, a heroine. Why yeah. Why do you like it, Francis? I like its cruelty, mm. okay. I, and I like the way that <laughs> I like the way that Doctor Sloper looks deeply into the suffering that he's caused. Yeah, I think it's, and does nothing I think it's about a it. brilliant study mm. of, of, of domestic cruelty. And I like its length and I like its New Yorkness. Yeah. yeah. I, think yeah. It's, I think it's perfect. I New York in Evening. Novel. New York in Evening yeah. in it is, is, is brilliantly done. I think. Oh, yeah. and there was the excellent it. film as well, wasn't there? Oh, um, was there? The Heiress. The fact that it's been filmed so well. Was it The Heiress? Exactly, yeah, with Olivia de Havilland. Montgomery Cliff. Exactly. And Ralph Richardson. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that was, yeah, I think that's helped enormously with making um, making the book accessible. But the film is wonderful on its own. I remember seeing the film without knowing that it was the ambassador, yeah. that it was Washington Square. And there have been so many, and you mentioned this at the very beginning, actually, Philip, about um, the new Aspen Papers um, 
film. There are there have been so many successful adaptations of James. Is it just that his prose is just so? See, he's it, the least so, filmic guy. I, find it I don't think so. No, it's so it's so. Uh, well, he's so sort of he's terribly interested symbolism. in point of view, and that works very well with film if it, if it's done. Right. I mean, you know, there was a book on uh, Henry James and Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, I mean, but I guess the reason he failed in the theatre was he was incapable, it seems to me, of telling a clear uh, action-based story, which is one of the factors in film as well, isn't it? He wouldn't have written I, I, a good I, film. I've, I've got a slightly um, guilty uh, liking for the plays. The plays. Uh, I mean, I, I, the American, I, got, I thought, I quite enjoyed. Yeah. So. I mean, I mean, they're, well, most of them are comedies, and they're actually quite funny. I mean, if you know, the, the more serious stuff is but the point is, is, he, is he very dated. It, yeah, but he couldn't make it in the in the theatre. He mm. failed there. Francis mm. talks about that briefly. Um, would he have made good films? He probably wouldn't, would he? Not not by himself. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, my crassly populist thing to do. Um, I'm going to start with you, Francis. Is you have to name one book that you can only ever we can only, if you can never read Henry James again only one book that you'd pick and one book that you would consign to eternal darkness as you wish he'd never written oh my goodness well I think the book has to be Washington Square to keep okay to keep the one I consigned to hmm uh, the tragic news Oh, no. Oh, we've, <laughs> yeah. you've broken oh, Philip Horn. Uh, yeah, Philip Horn's edition. Uh, yeah, to consign my edition. Yeah. Uh, Why the tragic muse? I just, I just can't get on with it. Yeah. Oh. I can't get on with it. I've struggled and struggled and struggled. And even though I like the difficulty and I like the pain thresholds, I can't do it. I can't uh, do it. It's okay. his funniest novel, I think. Philip, yeah. it's gone. It's gone. Yeah, I know, I know. Okay. <laughs> Name, uh, one to keep, one to consign. Uh, well, to keep the golden bowl, probably, because... Uh, you never feel you've quite cracked it. And I don't know what to get rid of. Something minor, I suppose. Um, a little tour in France I don't oh, particularly care about. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to, I like it. Yeah, yeah OK, OK. Thea, do you want anything you want to consign? Or keep? I'd keep, well, I'd keep Washington Square and I'd probably add um, The Turn of the Screw, actually. Um, because to I can consign. read it again. No, no, oh, to keep. To keep. Oh, oh, you can, you, and you can get them in, in sort of editions. Exactly, they're, they're yeah, the with the Aspen Papers yeah, usually it comes. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's a good, one. That's that's a good book to keep. Yeah, that's a good book to keep. <laughs> Anyone you want to consign? Anything you particularly... Uh, no, I haven't read The Golden Bowl, so I couldn't possibly say. I'm not against consigning The Golden Bowl because uh, I, I, I find it very difficult. I'm going to keep Portrait of a Lady because I can't believe otherwise and we're not mm. keeping it, the great novel. Mm. Princess yeah. Casamassima? Not an enjoyable read, as James tries to do Dickens mm. unsuccessfully. Not, not very. It's. Uh, I, yeah, I just reread it. It's, it's, it's very disturbing. I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, it's not. Any, I don't think it's anybody's favourite. No, you're not. You're not going to throw anything at me for that. No. Thankfully, you're, no. thankfully, Francis, you're you're in New York, so you can't. You, Philip can't throw anything at you for the tragic muse going after so painstakingly edited it as well. <laughs> oh dear. Well, I'm sure. Well, his edition will transfer. Stop trying oh, to here we go. Edition, <laughs> Francis. It's all right. Yeah. But what have you said to her before we uh, yeah. before we came on? Yeah. Um, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, um, I think we've definitely covered Henry James. Uh, our thanks go to Francis Wilson and Philip Horn. Uh, make sure you're subscribing not only to this podcast but the TLS itself. This week in the paper, we have a Middle East special section touching on Turkey, Iran, and terrorism. Next week, the paper has a history special, so we may drag onto this podcast history editor and Arsenal fan David Horsepool, or we may just abuse him from afar. We haven't worked that out yet, Thea, have we yet? No. No, no, no. We, we like to keep things 
unprepared. Unprepared here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Flexible. Flexible. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.